Hello, welcome to the reading of the Sioux City Journal for Tuesday, December 19th. I'm Dagna, your reader today. Today's mini editorial was written by the Reverend Gerald Fierfell of Sioux City, and he writes, We've never elected a president who jailed political opponents, built concentration camps for unwelcome aliens, or dismantled the Constitution over a disappointed outcome of an election. Why, in God's name, would we do so now? And again, this was written by the Reverend Gerald Fearfall of Sioux City. I'm not sure if I said his last name correctly. It's spelled F-E-I-E-R-F-E-I-L. Now we'll have the recap of the five-day forecast for the Siouxland area. Today is going to be partly sunny, um, breezy at times with a high of 49 and a low of 24. Wednesday will be partly sunny with a high of 46 and a low of 32. Thursday will be cloudy and mild with a high of 48 and a low of 35. Friday will be mild with partial sunshine with a high of 50 and a low of 36. And Saturday will be about the same, mild with low clouds, a high of 52 and a low of 43. Our first article today is headlined from Whoville to Sioux Local Grinch brings Dr. Seuss character to life. And this was written by journal reporter Caitlin Yamada. The Grinch hated Christmas the whole Christmas season, but sometimes the Sioux Grinch enjoys it. The Siouxville Grinch, also known as Martin Dalcourt, has been frequenting the tri-state area for the past three years, bringing the famed Dr. Seuss character to life. He can be found visiting local stores and events, teasing children and adults alike. On Saturday, the Siouxville Grinch visited the Marketplace Hy-Vee store, greeting children and their parents for a morning breakfast. He strolled about with his famous onion, taking pictures and joking around with the kids. At one point, Del- Delcourt held an attendee's phone. He quoted his daily day schedule from the 2000 film starring Jim Carrey. 4 o'clock, wallow in self-pity. 4.30, stare into the abyss. 5 o'clock, solve world hunger. Tell no one. 5.30, jazzercise. 6.30, dinner with me. I can't cancel that again. 7 o'clock, wrestle with my self-loathing. I'm booked. While some kids were thrilled to see one of their favorite Christmas characters, others were not. Delcourt has always been interested in special effects makeup. He ran a seasonal Halloween store in Canada and could always be found in the makeup department trying out different products and techniques. I just found it neat. I could slap something on my face and just look like somebody else and be somebody else for a while, he said. When deciding what character to portray in the Christmas season, Delcourt felt that the Grinch was a good middle ground. Everyone's done Santa. Krampus is too dark. Grinch is right down the middle. He's a little bad and a little good, he said. He appeals to kids, young and old. The Grinch allows him to make a difference in children's lives, seeing them laugh and smile at an iconic character. Delcourt's version of the Grinch is closely related to Jim Carrey's Grinch from How the Grinch Stole Christmas Movie. Delcourt said he is a big fan of Carrey's Grinch and was amazed at the character he created. He said he was especially bummed when he found out Carrey was retiring. He made the Grinch the character that it was for that movie, he said. To prepare for the role, each year Delcourt watches How the Grinch Stole Christmas. While the Grinch in the movie is devious, bad-tempered, and grumpy, Delcourt said he has to straddle a line between being mischievous and not malicious. 
He said he is dedicated to keeping the character fun and lighthearted while giving kids a little scare every once in a while, making sure to make eye contact with the parents to ensure all is well. Chasing them around, poking them in the nose, that's about the extent that you're going to see, he said. Being Grinch is not cheap, Dalcourt said. His suit was a $1,000 custom-made uh, creation. Each prosthetic mask is $100. It takes him approximately two hours to get ready for the role, and then he has to touch up the makeup between events. This is the first year Delcourt is expanding into corporate events. He said he is happy to help businesses feature new products, take holiday work photos, attend events like Santa, uh, participate in art shows, shows, and more. Delcourt can be booked through his Facebook page, Sueville Grinch. There are a number of photos, too, with that story about the Sueville Grinch and showing um, the Grinch in action at the Hy-Vee on Hamilton Boulevard on December 16th. So there's multiple pictures showing him with um, various kids while they're eating breakfast in the cafe and all that sort of stuff. And then our next article is by Dolly Butts, a Sioux City uh, Journal reporter, about the uh, council meeting on Monday, uh, Council Advances Water Park. The Sioux City Council, during its Monday meeting, took one of the first steps in making Siouxland Splash, a water park planned for a 10-acre parcel along Highway 75, a reality. The Council, by voting in favor of its consent agenda, approved a resolution inviting proposals for the sale of the land. The resolution is also announces the Council's intent to accept the proposal of an investor consortium planning to build a water park and sets a date for proposals and a public hearing. Uh, Councilwoman Julie Shaner said during the Council comment portion of the meeting, I'm very happy to see that the water park development agreement has officially begun and that's out in public. It's going to Go, it's been going on for several years. I just want everyone to remember that this is the first step of a future development in that area. Shaner said the city has acquired several pieces of property, 43 acres where the water park will begin, and another 54 acres in that area. She said that the 54 acres is intended for light industrial or some other form of commercial property development. The water park will begin with approximately 10 to 12 acres. I think they are intending on investing 12 to 15 million dollars, she said of the Frontline Development LLC, a group of local investors who intend to build Siouxland Splash at 3820 Highway 75 North. It's going to be a very large professional park with possibly some future plans for other phases. There could be other amenities added. There could be a hotel. We just don't know. Siouxland Splash is slated to be open for business by the summer of 2025 and is under design by a team of experienced and specialized water park consultants. Sioux City currently has several public pools and a splash pads, but no water parks. Siouxland Splash will be a dynamic water park featuring an array of attractions such as body slides, tube slides, multi-featured kids zone, and diverse pools of all ages. Uh, according to city documents, as well as a culinary hub with a variety of food and drink options. Joe Zering, partner and co-owner of Frontline Development LLC, said his group wants to create a family-friendly amenity that will engage the community. 
Our team came up with the idea of the water park and it seemed to make a lot of sense. It was something the community has been wanting. It just flowed really smooth, he said. This is a great opportunity for Sioux City to have something fun for the area, for the whole community, for the surrounding communities. We really are excited for this. Zering said he will be back in the council chambers on January 22nd to finish the deal. At that time, he said some concepts for the water park will be revealed. It is a big design. It's a big park, he said. Councilman Alex Waters said he shares some of Shaner's excitement in taking the first step toward the development of Siouxland Splash. I think that we're going to open up a corridor that's really ready for development. I think it's a really exciting proposal, said Waters, who thanked Zaring and the other investors, as well as city staff and Shaner for their dedication to the project. I don't think this project is coming to our community at all, if it wasn't for Julie stepping up and really having those conversations. The water park will have an initial $7 million minimum tax valuation. The land would be sold to the developer at a price of $22,946 per acre for a total of $229,460. The developer will make a $100,000 payment at the close of the deal and pay the remainder of the balance over 10 years. As part of the deal, the city would agree to construct street improvements for an entrance to the site at an estimated cost of $1 million, half of which would be eligible for Iowa DOT RISE grant funding, and build a regional stormwater pond to serve the site. Estimated cost is uh, $367,000. The city would also provide a partial 75% property tax rebate of the new incremental taxes created by the value added to the property. This would amount to a total tax rebate assistance estimated at $1.7 million over a 10-year period. The de developer has also requested an option to purchase right of first refusal agreement on the remainder of the 42-acre site for a period of 10 years for potential future expansion of the water park or related developments like a hotel. Mild weather delays Cone Park opening. The earliest Cone Park snow tubing hill is likely to open for the season is the day after Christmas. The Sioux City Parks and Recreation Department made the announcement Sunday in a Facebook post. We have staff ready 24-7 to make snow, but unfortunately weather has been too warm. Looking at the upcoming forecast, we anticipate not opening until at least after Christmas Day, the post said. Parkgoers are encouraged to follow Cone Park's Facebook page for updates. Sioux City's highs are expected to be the upper 40s and lower 50s this week. Recreation Superintendent John Burns previously told the journal his department needs about 26 degrees to make snow. Tuesday is the only day this week with low forecasts in the 20s. Burns said the goal is to always have the main tubing hill at the park, 3800 Line Drive, open for Christmas break if the weather allows it. Last year, the park recorded record attendance, 29,059 visitors, as well as record revenue, $346,003. However, operating expenses have increased in infrastructure at the park, which opened in 2017. Snow tubing fees are increasing for the first time in the park's history after the Sioux City Council approved a proposal to raise admission by $3 for the upcoming season. Tubers will pay $10 or $15 depending on the day of the week. Reduced rates for low-income families will continue to be offered. For more information on admission and park hours, visit ConeParkSiouxCity.com. 
Man faces vehicular homicide charge in crash near Rock Valley. An Alvord, Iowa man has been arrested and charged with vehicular homicide in connection with a July crash in which a Rock Valley, Iowa woman was killed. The Sioux County Sheriff's Office served an arrest warrant Friday on Caleb DeBay, 21. He was booked into the Sioux County Jail on charges of vehicular homicide, operating while intoxicated, and vehicular homicide reckless driving. Bond was set at $30,000. DeBay was driving an Audi A4 west of on 300th Street near Fillmore Avenue, northeast of Rock Valley, approximately 12.35 a.m. July 30th, when he failed to negotiate a curve, left the road, and struck a culvert, causing the car to become airborne. Passenger Haley Bleak, 35, of Rock Valley, was not wearing a seatbelt and was ejected through the windshield, and the car came to rest on top of her. She was pronounced dead at a local hospital, and DeBay was treated for injuries. According to court documents, DeBay was driving at least 126 miles per hour at the time of the crash. A search warrant was issued for a sample of DeBay's blood, and tests showed a blood alcohol con concentration of 0.157%, nearly double the legal limit and the presence of controlled substances. DeBay was arrested September 1st in an unrelated drunken driving case in Rock Valley. He has pleaded not guilty to first offense operating while intoxicated and awaits trial. We'll now move to the regular Tuesday feature, Five Questions With, and this week is written by Earl Horlick and it's with Sioux City social worker Kemi Brown. While many people associate Christmas with memories of family, Kemi Brown will always identify the holiday of Kwanzaa when remembering her late aunt, a Milwaukee social worker who was also named Kemi. I was named after my aunt, and I lived with her when I was a teenager, Brown explained. Aunt Kemi was married to a man from Ghana, and that led her to examine her own African roots. Kwanzaa was created in 1966 by author and activist Malana Karinga. It was a reaction to the Watts riot, which resulted in 34 deaths and more than $40 million in damage in the predominantly African-American section of Los Angeles. Karinga, a college professor of African studies, started Kwanzaa specifically to give black people a chance to celebrate themselves and their history that would not be part of the Christian holiday of Christmas. You see, Christmas is a religious holiday while Kwanzaa was a culture celebration. Brown, herself a Sioux City-based social worker, explained. Kwanzaa, which means first in Swahili, is observed from December 26 to January 1st. When I found out Aunt Kemi celebrated Kwanzaa, I thought it was weird and different, Brown admitted. Being a teenager, I didn't like weird and different. Instead, I wanted to fit in. My high school friends all celebrated Christmas. I felt out of place because we celebrated Kwanzaa. Over time, Brown began to embrace the observance, which celebrated community rather than a reliance on a higher power. Kwanzaa was based on principles that you can follow throughout the year, not simply on the seven days of December, she said. And so our first question, you mentioned the seven principles of Kwanzaa. What are they? The seven principles are, or Neguzo Saba of Kwanzaa was meant to connect black Americans to their African roots by uplifting their community by recognizing and honoring traditional African family values. On day one, we celebrate Umoja, which means unity. Day two, it was 
Oh, I can't say that word. Uh, it's spelled K-U-J-I-C-H-A-G-U-L-I-A, which means self-determination. Uh, day three was Ujima, or working together. Day four is Ujama, which means supporting each other. Day five, Nia, which means purpose. On day six, we celebrate Kumbra, our creativity, and on day seven was meant for Imani, which means faith, especially faith in ourselves. Since Kwanzaa wasn't a religious holiday, it wasn't celebrated in a church, right? And she answers that, no, my family would celebrate Kwanzaa by going to a different house each night. In addition, we'd light a canara, which held three red candles, three candles, and one black candle. The candle represent liberation, and we'd light one candle each night for the entire week. And the next question, are gifts exchanged during Kwanzaa? Yes, they are. However, the gifts are homemade rather than purchased from a store. Constructing a mat to place at the bottom of a canara is a popular Kwanzaa gift. And the next question, do you have to be an African-American or of African descent to celebrate Kwanzaa? Of course not. Everyone is encouraged to practice the principles of Kwanzaa, since it stresses human relationships as well as strong ties within the family and community. It does it by putting the collective community ahead of the individual. In other words, it truly does take a village. I've been teaching Kwanzaa to area children as well as to community members for many years. Anybody can find value in following the principles of Kwanzaa. And, and the last question, what has the celebration of Kwanzaa meant to you? And the answer, it has made me live a more purposeful life, especially nowadays. It is easy to silo yourself away from other people. Kwanzaa, which is all about family, friends, and community, is something that brings us together. It is also still a celebration of a value system where we work together, support one another while finding purpose and faith in ourselves. This is something I learned from my Aunt Kimmy. I am now a social worker like she was. I may be following in her footsteps. Kwanzaa is something I have passed on to my own children. It's important to pass down our traditions to the next generation. Six Iowans recognized for burning building rescues. Six Iowans who rescued others from burning buildings were recognized for their courage and selfless acts of bravery Monday at the annual Governor's Life-Saving and Sullivan Brothers Award Ceremony. Governor Kim Reynolds said at the ceremony held in the Iowa Capitol Rotunda, Today we have the opportunity to express our gratitude for the astonishing courage. Caleb Crocker of Gutenberg and Andrew Krieg of Cylinder were presented with the Governor's Life-Saving Award. Established in 1977, the award is given to everyday Iowans who perform courageous acts in an attempt to save another person's life or selflessly assist in an emergency situation. Crocker was working for the night shift at a group home in Gutenberg for Iowans with disabilities when it caught fire last December. Iowa Public Safety Commissioner Stephen Bayans said Crocker was treated for smoke inhalation after he rescued residents. Bayans said, as the home started to fill with smoke, Caleb continually re-entered the home, not once, not twice, but five times, and guided and in some instances carried the residents to safety. Throughout his, this ordeal, Caleb remained calm and focused even though the residents were scared, confused, and did not really appreciate what was unfolding. Craig was working at a rural 
Palo Alto County Farm on November 28, 2022, when he got a call from a fellow farmhand who reported seeing smoke coming from the acreage of an elderly neighbor and was asked if he could drive by and check it out. Bayan said when Craig arrived, the home was on fire, the door was locked, and he could just make out the faint silhouette of a hand inside the smoke-filled room. Andrew forced his way in through the locked door, ventured inside the burning home, battled the thick smoke bellowing inside, and located the elderly resident lying on the floor, Bayan said, and carried him to safety. Shelby County Sheriff Neil Gross and deputies Cody Eccles, Jacob Haas, and William McDaniel were presented with the Sullivan Brothers Award of Valor, which recognizes peace officers and firefighters for heroic acts above and beyond the normal call of duty. The officers were recognized for rescuing a suicidal man on July 12, 2021, who had barricaded himself in a home in Elkhorn, screwed the door shut from the inside, and set the home on fire with the intention to blow up the home. Bayan said as rounds of ammunition started exploding inside the home, the man started pounding on a door asking for help. In that moment, a decision had to be made. The threat of ambush was real, Bayan said. Ammunition appeared to be cooking off inside, and the prospect of the house may, that the house may explode was palpable. Nonetheless, these four men decided to bear those risks and attempt to save the occupant. Led by Eccles carrying a ballistics shield, the four officers battered their way into the home and saved the man. The fire was later extinguished. The award is named in honor of five brothers, all in their 20s, from Waterloo, who perished while serving together on a Navy ship that was sunk in World War II. The brothers, George, Frank, Joel, Matter, and Albert Sullivan, died when two Japanese torpedoes struck their ship. Waterloo third-grade teacher Kelly Sullivan, the granddaughter of Albert Sullivan, attended the ceremony in the Capitol Rotunda. The South Dakota abortion amendment draws no majority on either side, poll finds. The battle over a proposed 2024 ballot amendment that would enshrine abortion rights in the South Dakota Constitution is not currently getting majority support from either side, according to a statewide poll sponsored by South Dakota News Watch. The survey of 500 registered voters showed that 45.6% of respondents support the proposed measure, which would supersede a state abortion ban enacted when the U.S. Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Raid in June 2022. That's more than the 43.6% who said they oppose the change, but it's within the poll's margin of error of 4.5%. It's certainly competitive, said Rick Wyland, former Democratic U.S. Senate candidate and executive director of Dakotans for Health, a grassroots organization gathering signatures to put the amendment on the November 2024 ballot. But I think once South Dakota voters understand that the trigger law they're living under is one of the most extreme measures in the entire country, these numbers will grow. Representative John Hansen, Republican from Del Rapids, who serves as Vice President of South Dakota Right to Life and co-chair of the Sioux Falls-based Life Defense Fund, viewed the results as a positive for the anti-abortion abortion movement. He emphasized the fact that women surveyed in the poll opposed this measure 50.2% to 40.6%, with 9.2% undecided. A majority of men, 51%, said they support the proposed amendment. 36.9% oppose it and 12% are undecided. This poll makes clear that the majority of South Dakotans do not support the extreme abortion amendment, including the majority of women who have decided to oppose it, Hansen said in an email statement. 
Mason Dixon Polling and Strategy conducted the survey November 27th through 29th. Those interviewed were selected randomly from a telephone match state voter registration list that included both landline and cell phone numbers. Respondents were representative of all South Dakota counties, ages, gender, and political parties. The margin of error is plus or minus 4.5%. South Dakota Newswatch and the Cheisman Center for Democracy at the University of South Dakota sponsored the poll. The poll question summarized the amendment this way. During the first trimester, it would prevent the state from regulating abortions. During the second trimester, the state could regulate the abortion decision, but any regulation must be reasonably related to the physical health of the mother. During the third trimester, abortion could be prohibited except if it is necessary to preserve the life or health of the pregnant woman, according to her physician. Hansen has criticized the wording of the proposed amendment, saying it's far more extreme than Roe v. Wade itself. Wyland and others push back on that statement by saying the amendment uses the same trimester framework as Roe, the landmark 1973 ruling in which the Supreme Court held that the Constitution protected a woman's right to an abortion prior to the viability of the fetus. South Dakota is currently under a 2005 state trigger law activated when the Supreme Court left it up to states to determine reproductive rights with its ruling in Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization. The law makes it a Class 6 felony for anyone who administers to any pregnant female or prescribes or procures for any pregnant female a means for an abortion except to save the life of the mother. South Dakota is one of 14 states whose abortion law does not include exceptions for rape and incest. Some take Key takeaways from the Newswatch poll. Party lines. Democrats surveyed support the proposed amendment um, by a margin of 54.9% with 12.3% undecided. Republicans opposed by a margin of 52.4% with 11.3% undecided. For independents and others, it was 54.6% support and 8.5% undecided. The age difference. The highest support of the proposed amendment, 48.5%, came from the 65-plus age group, while the lowest, 43.2%, came from the 50-64 to age group. Support from the other age groups was 47.6% from the 18-34 to year-olds and 45.3% from the 35-49 to year-olds. And then geographical splits. The most support of the proposed amendment came from the East River uh, 54.5%, followed by the Sioux Falls Metro uh, at 46.7%, West River 41.3%, and East River South 40.40%. The proposed amendment reflects a national trend of progressive groups using the ballot initiative process to gain ground on the abortion rights since the Supreme Court rolled back the federal protections by overturning Roe v. Wade. Election wins have come in conservative states such as Ohio, Uh, where 57% of the voters approved a constitutional amendment in November of 2023 that ensured access to abortion and other forms of reproductive health care. In Kansas, voters overwhelmingly rejected a 2022 constitutional amendment that would have allowed the Republican-led legislature to tighten restrictions or ban abortion outright, with 59% voting against the amendment. Petition efforts are also underway in states such as Arizona, Florida, Nevada, and Nebraska to try to put the issue before voters in 2024, a presidential election year in which high turnout is expected. Dakotans for Health needs to collect a minimum of 35,000 
17 signatures to place the abortion constitutional amendment on the South Dakota ballot. Whelan told Newswatch that this group, that his group has collected close to 50,000 signatures as it pursues a goal of 60,000 or more to ensure that ballot access isn't foiled by invalidated signatures or other technicalities. The deadline to submit signatures is May 7, 2024. First, you have to make sure that you've got something to vote on, which is what we've been focused on, said Wieland. Then there is a campaign to educate people in South Dakota about this issue, and we've already had conversations with tens of thousands of voters since we started actively circulating our petitions. You know, that's 50,000 votes in the bank. The petition drive has galvanized an equally passionate opposition movement with anti-abortion groups wary of allowing the issue to reach the ballot. South Dakotans rejected near-total abortion bans by statewide vote in 2006 and 2008. Life Defense Fund demonstrators, as part of their decline to sign campaign, have occasionally clashed with Dakotans for Health volunteers. Attorney General Marty Jackley sent a letter to Dakotas for Health on October 31st saying that he had received video and photographic evidence purporting to show unattended petitions, a violation of state law, and people signing the same petition twice. Whelan said his group trains petition circulators to follow state law and has addressed any irregularities. He said the larger issue is the harassment his volunteers have experienced at the hands of Life Defense Fund demonstrators. Dakotans for Health successfully challenged a policy passed by the Minnehaha County Commission that imposed what a judge determined were unreasonable restrictions for petition circulators at the court administration building. A settlement was reached that removed references to a designated area for petition circulators and no longer required circulators to check in with a county auditor before engaging in political activity. Hansen said his group is committed to campaigning against the measure because of the high-stakes nature of the abortion issue. Like Life Defense Fund works every day to inform South Dakotans about the actual impacts of the abortion amendment, including legalizing late-term abortion and endangering women by banning safety regulations for most abortions, Hansen said. One thing is clear, the more people learn about the actual impacts of the extreme abortion amendment, the more they reject it. You were listening to the reading of the Sioux City Journal for Tuesday, December 19th on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. We'll now move to today's obituaries, beginning with Joyce Burcham, 88, of Elk Point, passed away Thursday, December 14th at Sanford USD Medical Center in Sioux Falls. Funeral services will be 11 a.m. Wednesday, December 20th at Emanuel Lutheran Church in Akron, Iowa. Reverend Eric Alm will officiate. Burial will follow at Riverside Cemetery in Akron. Visitation with a family present will be from 10 a.m. until service time on Wednesday at the church and following the service during a time of lunch and fellowship at the church hall. Arrangements are with the Wex Wrinkle Funeral Home in Akron. Clayton W. Whitecloud, 81, of Sioux City, passed away Friday, December 15th. A memorial visitation will be Thursday, December 21st from 5 to 7 p.m. at Meyer Brothers Colonial Chapel. Mark A. Bailey, 58, of Colton, South Dakota, passed away Monday, December 18th. Arrangements are pending at Moore Funeral Home in Ponca, Nebraska. Lauren J. Bjornson, 80, of Sioux City, passed away Saturday, December 16th. Funeral services will be at 10.30 a.m. Thursday, December 21st at Bethany Lutheran Church. Visitation will be from 5 to 7 p.m. Wednesday, December 20th at 
with a prayer service at 7 p.m. at the uh, Meyer Brothers Colonial Chapel. Ruth E. Corbin, 97, of Sioux City, passed away December 15th. Graveside service will be at 11 a.m. December 20th at Little Sioux Township Cemetery in Smithland. Our arrangements are with the Gosler Funeral Home. Carol F. Wilson, 79, of Ida Grove, passed away December 16th at a local hospital. A funeral service is pending with Waterbury Funeral Service of Sioux City. Dean A. Ohlendorf, 73, of Remsen, passed December 14th in Cherokee, Iowa. Funeral services will be at 10.30 a.m. Wednesday, December 20th at Boothby Funeral Home in Cherokee. Visitation will be held from 4 to 7 p.m. Tuesday, December 19th with family present from 5 to 7 at Boothby Funeral Home in Cherokee. Robert Bob L. Seitzinger, Sr., 89, of Sioux City, passed away December 15th. Memorial service will be 10 a.m. December 19th at the Moville United Methodist Church. Visitation will be from 9 to 10 a.m. at the church. John C. Jack Johnson, age 83, of Cushing, Iowa, passed away on Friday, December 15th at the Good Samaritan Society Center in Holstein, surrounded by family. A funeral service will be held at 10.30 a.m. Wednesday, December 20th at the Nicholas D. Jensen Funeral Home in Holstein. Burial will be at the Cushing Cemetery. A visitation will be held from 4 to 7 p.m. on Tuesday, December 19th, with a Masonic service at 7 p.m. The Nicholas D. Jensen Funeral Home is in charge of arrangements. John was born in his family's farmhouse, farmhouse four miles west of Cushing on March 24, 1940, to L.D. Budd and Leona Wink Johnson. In 1944, John's dad purchased and moved to the Chicago Ranch two and a half miles south of Cushing. His school years began in the Cushing Consolidated School in 1945. In 1947, John's dad built a house in Correctionville where they lived, and John attended the Correctionville School until 1951 when they moved to another farm two and a half miles south of Cushing. John joined the Battle Badgers 4-H Club in 1951. He showed cattle and hogs at the Ida County Fair. He also showed hogs at the Iowa State Fair and cattle at the Axar Bend and Interstate in Sioux City. John was elected president of the Ida County 4-H in 1958. In the spring of 1957, John attended Hawkeye Boys State for the Cushing American Legion. John graduated from Cushing Consolidated School in 1958 and joined his father and brother in farming. On New Year's Eve in 1958, John met the love of his life, Dolores Dean, at a midnight show in Holstein. They started dating in April of 1959, and then on February 14, 1960, they were married in the St. Paul Lutheran Church in Holstein. The couple were blessed with four children, Johnny, Jimmy, Julie, and Jeffrey. He spent 63 years of his married life farming, attending sales, checking cows, county fairs, dancing, playing cards, and spending time with his children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren. Everything he did, he did with Dolores. If he showed up somewhere without her, he would be asked, where's Dolores? If you spent time with John, you always knew he would have a joke or two to tell. He was involved in the community and the church. He served as a leader of the Battle Badges 4-H Club, a 50-year member of the Masonry Order, a member of the Ida County Extension, a member of the Ida County Beef Producers, a member of the Ida, Ida County Sheep Producers, and was the chairman of the Finance Committee of the First United Church, Methodist Church of Cushing, Iowa. Leroy 
P. Schrunk, 86, of Lamar's, passed on Saturday, December 16th, at his home. Mass of Christian burial will be at 10.30 a.m. Saturday, December 23rd, at All Saints Catholic Parish St. Joseph Church in Lamar's. Father Doug Klein will celebrate Mass. Burial will follow at Calvary Cemetery in Lamar's. Visitation will be from 9 a.m. on Saturday at St. Joseph Church. The Mauer Johnson Funeral Home in Lamar's is, is assisting Leroy's family with arrangements. Susan Marie Evans Church, 67, of Sioux City, passed away December 6th. A memorial service will be held Wednesday, December 20th at 2 p.m. at Waterbury Funeral Service of Sioux City. Visitation will be one hour prior to the service. Susie was born on February 4, 1956 in Sioux City to Bob Evans and Ruth Roger Evans. Susie had a fulfilling career working in various food establishments around Sioux City. She dedicated her time and skills at Red Onion, Hardee's, and the Economy Market. In the 1980s, Susie and her late husband, Bob, operated a ceramics and gift shop called the Sandcastle in the Greenville area. Bob passed away in 2010. Despite facing health challenges, Susie remained resilient. In 2013, she received a kidney and liver transplant plant at the University of Nebraska in Omaha, which granted her 13 more years of life to cherish with her loved ones. Susie will be deeply missed by her son, Corey Robert Church, her sister, Jerry Devalu, her brother, Mike Evans, her partner, Grizz Richard Klamath, and her little dog, Dottie. James Daniel Nixon, a devoted husband and father, passed peacefully on Monday, December 4th to join his beloved wife, Frances Lee Nixon. No services are being held at this time. A celebration of his life is planned for the spring of 2024, a fitting tribute to a life well lived. The family expresses deep appreciation for the compassionate care provided by Hospice of the Midwest, and memorials will be directed to them in honor of James Daniel Nixon. In the echoes of our cherished memories and the purr of well-loved engines, Jim's spirit will forever endure. Our arrangements are under the direction of Waterbury Funeral Service of Sioux City. Jim was born in Sioux City on August 3, 1932, to the late Glenn and Florence Nixon. His journey through life was marked by a profound love for family and an enduring passion for collecting cars and clocks, reflecting his appreciation for the intricate and timeless. Jim was viewed as someone who could fix almost anything, a skill he put to good use as an engineer at IBM for over 30 years. Jim and Fran embarked on a remarkable journey of over 68 years of marriage, introduced to each other at the Ames Avenue Methodist Church Youth Group in Omaha. They began their love story at Reed's Ice Cream Shop in the same city. The Methodist Church in Blair, Nebraska witnessed their union on a snowy January 4, 1952. Jim's commitment extended beyond his family life, as he proudly served in the Navy on the island of Guam during the Korean War. His cont contributions included overseeing communications for the entire Pacific Theater and being part of the team that developed and implemented ground approach radar. Together, Jim and Fran raised three red-headed boys, Bradley James, Brian Anders, and Joel Allen. Um, the Nixon family created homes in various places, from Oakland, California, to Olathe, Kansas, Omaha, Sioux City, and the, for the past 27 years, Moville. Each location held a chapter in their beautiful story. 
Terry Wayne Wink, 63, of Sioux City, passed away surrounded by his family on December 15th. A funeral service will be held at 1 p.m. Thursday, December 21st at Waterbury Funeral Service of Sioux City. Visitation will be one hour prior to the service. Terry was born on February 24, 1960, in Sioux City to Raymond and Rosanna Wink. He was united in marriage to Elaine Wenkamp on August 17, 1979 in Elk Point, South Dakota. Terry loved to fish, golf, bowl, and play darts. He was a very creative man and could fix anything. His woodworking skills allowed him to build many different things. He was always willing to help others and would do anything for anybody. Our next story headline is, After 80 Years on the Job, Nebraska Man Sells Trusty Bulldozer. On Sunday, Syracuse community members gathered at the Luther Memorial Church to celebrate a man who has been a staple of the southeast Nebraska town for decades. Eddie Harms, born December 22, 1923, in Adams, turns 100 this year. For more than 80 of those years, he has worked as a farmer and soil conservationist, only recently selling his trusty Caterpillar dozer. He still helps farmers that need their terraces fixed or their waterways, said friend Ruth Neiman of Syracuse. As long as he's got work, he's going to work. He doesn't stay still very long. Harms grew up on his family's farm just southeast of Adams with 12 siblings. Neiman first knew Harms as the husband of her grade school teacher, Millie Harms, and Eddie would come to visit the class in a memorable way. We would hear this airplane fly over the schoolhouse and we'd all run to the windows, Neiman said. He'd always wave to us when he ended up outside the schoolhouse. Eddie and Millie married in 1952 after they met at the wedding of one of Eddie's older brothers. They had two children, Tim and Tanya, later moving to Burr, where Eddie continued his work as a soil conservationist. Their own land, Neiman said, was something the couple took great care of. They were good stewards of the land, Neiman said. They worked hard and saved and were able to purchase quite a bit of land and have been very successful farmers. The couple retired to Syracuse in 1999. In 2008, Millie suffered a stroke that kept her confined to a nursing home. Christian said this was a defining moment for the family. Her mother was outgoing, and her father usually did more physical labor around the house. With Millie in assisted living, Eddie had to take on a bigger role. That's when Dad really had to step up to the plate, and he did a really good job. He visited Millie every night, usually tucking her into bed after they watched game shows like Wheel of Fortune. While at the nursing home, Eddie became friends with Tammy Heller of Syracuse, whose grandmother was roommates with Millie. Heller appreciated their dedication to one another over the decade Millie lived in the nursing home. Heller and Harms kept in touch, often visiting the home together until Millie died in February of 2019. Then, Harms required a valve replacement surgery, which meant he needed additional home care and cardiac rehab. Heller stepped in to help him. Eddie is the hardest working guy I've really have known besides my dad, Heller said. I would go and see him periodically and keep in touch with him because I love this man like a grandpa. I love talking to him. Christian, who lives in Minnesota, sees his impact on the community of Syracuse. She said it makes her feel at peace knowing that her father has such a strong support system. It is very comforting since I live so far away. I'm really proud of him, too. He is a really humble guy. He does his life and doesn't think what other people think, doesn't care what other people think. Growing up on the farm, Eddie and his siblings learned to be responsible for their own jobs on the family land. 
We'd come in for the day and Dad would ask us if we had the chores done, Eddie said. He said, you better know if you had them done or not. We learned what we needed to do. The work interested him and kept him learning to care for the land as he grew. He's earned awards for his soil conservation and made a name for himself in southeast Nebraska as someone willing to lend a hand when a neighbor needs him. His son, Tim, now works in Texas using the mechanical skills his father taught him. I would say I just followed him in his footsteps, and Tim said he's a really good man. Christian said the sale of Eddie's Caterpillar dozer was hard for him, a sign of the times and the loss of his ability to help farmers in a big way. Before its sale, he added a step so he could get into the bulldozer more easily. An avid newsreader, a Husker fan, and a friend to all in the community, Eddie still lives in his own home and visits friends and family in and around Syracuse. Friends up here ask why I don't move my dad up to Minnesota, but he wouldn't be happy, she said. He loves taking care of the land and being busy doing things. His daughter said she visits every month and sees how much he loves living in his own home and working on his own schedule. She keeps an eye on, the w on whether assisted living is the right move, but for now it is not. I almost can't believe he's that old, she said, and I think sometimes he thinks the same thing. Iowa educator wins jobless benefits after marijuana bust. An Iowa educator who was fired after police found three pounds of marijuana at her home is entitled to jobless benefits, a judge has ruled. According to state records, Amy Garrison Perkins was employed by the Waterloo Community School District as a behavior and interventionist at Expo Alternative High School earlier this year. In September, police went to the school and served a search warrant on Garrison Perkins in connection with the search of her home. Garrison Perkins allegedly informed the district's chief human resources officers that she had a medical marijuana card, officially known as a, a medical cannabis deal registration card and that be and that because it was too expensive to legally purchase the product from vendors she was growing marijuana at home. Garrison Perkins allegedly told district officials that she was authorized to have four grams of medical marijuana in connection with her medical prescription, but that law enforcement had removed three pounds of marijuana from her home. Under the terms in which Iowa's medical registration cards are provided, Garrison Perkins was prohibited from possessing cannabidolio in any form that could be smoked or eaten. Several weeks after the search took place, Blackhawk County prosecutors charged Garrison Perkins in October with conspiracy to manufacture marijuana. Court records indicate police executed the search warrant at her home after spotting the five marijuana plants that were plainly visible in her backyard. A jury trial is scheduled for January. The district fired Garrison Perkins and she subsequently applied for unemployment benefits. After a hearing dealing with that application, Administrative Law Judge James Timberland noted that the district had no policies applying to off-duty conduct and that the Garrison Perkins actions did not involve the school, students, or staff. Timberland awarded Perkins unemployment benefits, adding that the decision in no matter condones the claimant's off-duty misconduct. And our next headline is worried about the dentist drilled down for a distraction. Which do you fear most, public speaking or a dental appointment? It's a tough choice to swallow, isn't it? I've done both more times than I can count, and I still get anxiety beforehand. The worst part is the waiting that leads up to it. Our mind plays tricks with us with the 
conspiracy of time. Uh, I would do much better if I was yanked off the street and dragged onto a stage in front of 200 people to give a one-hour presentation on, say, doorknobs, or kidnapped by a gang of dental hygienists, thrown into a dental chair and tied down by dental floss. There would be no pre-visit anxiety. But when you tell me that my next appointment is on a certain date, Guess which date becomes one of my least favorite dates of the year? I now dread that date. It's like circling a date on the calendar and writing in big, bold letters, uh-oh. It's different with public speaking, which I usually agree to because the date is so far into the future. I don't believe it will ever arrive. Last month, I was asked, are you available to speak on March 4th? Sure, I replied. March 4th doesn't yet exist, I thought. It's like asking if I would like to schedule a dental appointment on Mars. Sure, I would casually casually reply it doesn't exist but then what do you know march 4th will arrive and then i will arrive clutching my baggage of of anxiety and i'm not alone decades of studies have been done on dental fear it can be more painful than the actual dental treatment i visited my dentist last week as the dental hygienist cleaned my teeth i began writing this column in my head any distractions are welcomed since my youth, I've had countless dental procedures done at different offices. I know the process like the back of my mouth. Settle into the chair, lean back, open my mouth, clench my hands together, and let my mind wander. The distraction of conversation is a dental tool you won't find on the hygienist tray, but it's crucial for most fearful patients. How about today's weather? What are you doing later today? Do you have any holiday plans? Kudos to them for trying to ease patients' worries. I'd rather have a root canal than engage in polite chit-chat, but the conversations I prefer are difficult at 30-second intervals with a suction tube in my mouth. Wordplay is one of my favorite things in the world, uh, but I need my mouth to do it. Without verbal words, my facial expressions are as dis demonstrative as a bowl of oatmeal. At my recent dental appointment, the hygienist talked about an interesting subject that I have a personal history with, the role of a step-parent in a blended family. I could have, I could give a public presentation on this top, contrasting its challenges and rewards. I lived it. I know it. I've learned so much about it. But I wasn't able to elaborate my insights as much as I would have liked. I felt I spoke too much as it was, causing the hygienist to take a break from my cleaning. My inner dialogue screamed at me, shut up. I should know better. I have an insight source about this sensitive subject. My wife is a dental hygienist. I've heard stories about patients who never shut up or who never talk or never brush their teeth or they think flossing is a dance move. Lying about brushing our teeth is our national pastime. Some patients don't think twice about devouring a package of Oreo cookies on their way to visit a dentist. Other patients blame hygienists for taking too much time to clean their teeth, though they haven't brushed their teeth since the Trump administration. I would have no patience for most patients. I've had multiple crowns, root canals, fillings, and numbing shots. I've drooled on myself and sounded like a drunken toddler. I once had a very painful condition called dry socket for days, but I didn't tell my dentist. I didn't want to come across as a whiny or wussy patient. Why didn't you call my office? My former dentist asked angrily. I didn't have the nerve to tell him the truth. I was scared the treatment might hurt. This is the power of irrational fear. It hurts more than what we actually fear. And this was written by Jerry Davich who is a, a columnist and writes for the Times of Northwest Indiana. And now we'll move to Dear Abby and our, our beginning letter. We live in a retirement community. 
Many of our friends have hearing loss that ranges from slight to profound. While most of them have the money to travel the globe, they did not. They don't invest in hearing aids, which confounds us. In restaurants, they keep bending their ears towards us and saying what to just about every word. We are careful to enunciate clearly for their benefit, but it does not help much. Our natural inclination is to speak louder, which has embarrassed us several times as other diners grew quiet and turned to look at us. On the most recent occasion, I brought a little notebook and a pen in my purse, and when I wrote out a couple of responses, the wife looked offended. It didn't feel comfortable, but I thought it would be better than yelling or avoiding conversation altogether. We find ourselves declining invitations with them more often in favor of electronic communication. These are delightful people otherwise. We're just not sure how to handle this. Do you have any suggestions? Signed, Working Ears in Florida. And Abby responds, Yes, I do. Tell these people privately they may need to get their hearing checked because you are having to shout when you go out in public. Hearing loss happens to many seniors, and those who have the problem can find themselves increasingly isolated. This is why it's so important to consult an audiologist when you start noticing a need to raise a volume on the television, or you often have to ask people to repeat what they have just said to you. Dear Abby, my son and his fiancée are getting married next month. They are calling it an elopement, but although they have been telling everyone when and where the wedding is, they are not formally inviting anyone. I've come to terms with that. I realize the day is about them, not me. However, this is my only child, and I have always dreamed of being part of this milestone in his life. I'm sure that his fiancée's choice, and he is just going along with what she wants, but it is hurting me terribly to not be there. They have also decided a reception in their honor will be held six months afterward. Who does this? Is this proper etiquette? Signed, Broken-Hearted Mother. And Abby's response. The rigid rules of etiquette have loosened considerably in recent years. Many younger people prefer the casual over the formal. Please don't lay the sole blame on your soon-to-be daughter-in-law without first discussing this with your son, because you may be shocked to learn that this non-traditional wedding is happening with his enthusiastic blessing. If that's the case quietly let go of your dream. As to not being with your son on this special day, if you haven't received a formal invitation, show up with a smile anyway and offer your services as witness. Those who attend the wedding should be invited to the reception, and if they attend the reception, they should come with a gift in hand. And that concludes today's reading of the Sioux City Journal for Tuesday, December 19th. I'm Dagna, your reader. You can access a recording of today's reading on our website, iowaradioreading.org, at any time. And thank you for listening.
From the Bureau of Economic Geology, this is Earth Date. A decade ago, there were typically 20 earthquakes a year that were large enough to feel in the central and eastern U.S. But in 2015, there were over 1,000 of them. Why? It's mostly because we're pumping more water into the ground. The boom in U.S. oil and gas production over the last decade has brought many more oil wells, which also produce water. Most is naturally occurring in the formation, and some was injected by operators to allow or improve the recovery of oil and gas. In both cases, the water will likely have picked up salt and other minerals from the rock, making it many times saltier than seawater. Operators may re-inject this water to continue to liberate oil and gas, but more often, there's too much to handle. So it's trucked or piped to disposal wells, where it's pumped down into deep saltwater reservoirs. Adding large volumes of wastewater increases the pressure in these rock formations, which can allow natural faults to slip more easily than they normally would, causing earthquakes. To address these quakes, regulators and the petroleum industry are monitoring disposal wells and shutting down those that could cause damaging seismic activity. And they now think that managing wastewater injection more carefully should help. There's still more work to be done, and university research centers, like the Bureau of Economic Geology, are conducting major studies with the aim of minimizing the risk of earthquakes while maintaining the benefits of domestic energy production. For Earth Date, I'm Scott Tinker. Earth Date is produced by the Bureau of Economic Geology at the University of Texas at Austin, with support from Schlumberger, helping oil and gas companies increase production and efficiency while lowering environmental impact. You can hear more EarthDate stories at earthdate.org.